Greetings, and welcome to The Ace Case, where we make the case for the importance of addressing childhood trauma. Adverse childhood experiences have a ripple effect across society. Trauma is embedded in all of our lives, impacting our health and wellness in many ways. By having honest conversations with local community members, we hope to share stories and ideas surrounding health, wellness, resilience, and healing. Trauma is a current shaping all of our lives. If we attempt to better understand its impacts, we can become better equipped to answer what is possibly the most important question of all. How do we heal from trauma? In this podcast, we will be highlighting the work and perspectives of community members, have a few laughs, and enjoy a non-alcoholic beverage along the way. Wherever you are in your healing journey, this podcast is for you. Thank you to our talented, inspiring guests who volunteered their time to sit down for a conversation. Thank you to OVCDC and ACEs Aware for your continued support. I am your host, Luke Wilson. I'm a master's candidate in social work and am employed by the Owens Valley Career Development Center. This is the ACE case. Thank you for listening. What is going on, everybody? In this podcast, I sat down with Esther Hampton. During our talk, we sipped on some unsweetened iced tea and discussed how we might address trauma in more effective ways. Esther lives in Lone Pine and has been embedded in that community for the majority of her life. Esther covered a range of topics from her personal experiences growing up in a rural indigenous community to motherhood to weathering the pandemic with two young daughters. We talked about childhood education, community strengths and challenges, as well as how we might apply trauma-informed care in different settings. Esther has an incredible story and it was an honor to speak with her. She is someone who is so warm and kind and lights up whatever room she is in. Esther shares a lot of her personal life on this episode, and I really appreciate her honesty and strength in doing so. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this dialogue with Esther Hampton. All right. So our guest today is Esther Hampton. Um, Esther is someone I have always admired and respected from afar. We've been in several Zoom meetings together, and Esther always just seems to be a a ray of sunshine, someone who's super positive, who's really active in the community, um, who's doing a lot and wears a lot of hats. So I'm really excited that Esther agreed to be on this pod. Um, This is our inaugural episode. So thank you so much for being here, Esther. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, and I was wondering if you could just start off by saying, um, just introducing yourself a little bit and saying where you come from. Thank you, Luke. Manahu and Nania Ne Esther Hampton, Lone Pine Way, Kimadu. I am Esther Hampton. I live in Lone Pine. I am a Paiute Shoshone Lone Pine tribal member. I work for the Owens Valley Career Development Center as the site project coordinator at Lone Pine Site. My commute to work is very short. I live down the street. I have a, I'm currently working on a degree for the early childhood development part. I hope to obtain my site supervisor certificate to obtain, to basically build a preschool on the reservation for our young native families. And my biggest support is my husband, Justin Hampton. I've been married to him for 11 years now. We have gone up and down in our relationship through birth and through death on my side of the family. And he's just such a great support. 
I am very involved with my girls' education and their activities where my girls say, why can't you be like other parents and just watch from afar? And I say, I can't be that way. I need to know what you're doing, how you're doing academically, how you're feeling, because girls at a teenage age, they're a roller coaster. Yeah. Yes. Shout out, Justin. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'm hoping we can connect at some point about the school thing because um, that's definitely a reality in my life. I got two weeks left in the semester and I kind of feel like I'm double dutching right now, just burning the candle at both ends a little bit. So yeah, big props for being in school and um, working at the same time and, and raising kids. I can't imagine you have much free time these days. No, there's a lot of late nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, relatable. Okay. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to move on to reading the spiel. And then after the spiel, I just like to get your initial reactions. And then hopefully we'll just kind of have a conversation that flows from there. Actually, before the spiel, um, would you mind telling people what our beverage of choice today is? Uh, my beverage of choice is the unsweetened tea, the Tahava. Excellent. It's very delicious. I am old school. I like original black tea with no sugar or anything. I like it pure. Respect. Old school. <laughs> yeah. And would you mind describing to the listeners a little bit about our studio setup? So we are in a wonderful empty office, which is rare to find around here. I'm kind of jealous that my office, we're in a house and I am in basically the living room, but it is a nice space. So there's some cool equipment we're using. Get to talk on a mic, which I think is super fun. And um, in lieu of not having an official recording studio, we've used some children's toys to um, help set up our recording studio facility. So Esther is using a, um, what would you call that? I guess it's this like a, is a preschool stove that you'd find in a preschool setting. I had some working at preschool, and my kids did too from hand-me-downs. <laughs> Excellent. So it's it's a familiar space. Yes. Many a meals were prepared right here. <laughs> a charades meal. <laughs> All right. So here goes the spiel. Adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, are highly stressful events that occur before we turn 18. Everyone has their own story, and some of us encounter significant hardships in life that influence our development, trust, capacity for healthy relationships, as well as physical and mental health. An extensive body of science indicates that those who experience specific challenges related to abuse, neglect, and household challenges are more likely to develop toxic stress physiology and experience downstream health and wellness challenges across a lifetime. ACEs span a multitude of sectors from education to law enforcement to recovery to medical care to mental health treatment and beyond. Trauma has impacted all of our lives, but ongoing research demonstrates the scope and severity of this issue. Leading neuroscience indicates that when trauma is experienced during critical phases of development, it can have dramatic impact on the body's stress response system, sparking primal fight or flight survival mechanisms. This is equivalent to driving a car down the highway at 60 miles an hour in first gear. Toxic stress takes a dramatic toll on our bodies. ACEs have devastating impacts on individuals, families, and communities. It is estimated that the economic cost of ACEs is in excess of $113 billion annually. 
ACEs have been linked to nine out of 10 leading causes of death in the United States. A robust body of ACE science connects exposure to early life adversity to problems such as incarceration, addiction, learning differences, and brain development, diabetes, and heart disease, and even early death. Addressing childhood trauma and investing in healing may be the most critical step we can take towards treating many of society's most significant challenges. Healing from trauma is complex. There is no defined finish line. Everyone's healing journey looks different. The experiences of our ancestors and our own lived experience can contribute to a host of physical and psychological issues. Trauma becomes embedded in our DNAs, bodies, and minds. When our body's survival responses are tripped, we experience toxic stress, and it becomes necessary to engage in wellness work. This podcast is an attempt to generate awareness on these topics through the lens of local professionals who work in related fields. It is our hope that through this content, you might learn about the many impacts of trauma and gain some insight on your own healing journey. When ACEs can, while ACEs can seem daunting, there is an upside to this information as well. By conducting ACE screening, we can promote awareness, early intervention, and education on these subjects. Science tells us that responsive relationships, participation in faith and cultural traditions, increasing sense of mastery or autonomy, and supportive community services all contribute towards healing from toxic stress. By having honest conversations, we hope to convey information, destigmatize talking about trauma, and explore effective strategies for healing and wellness. All right, Esther. So just to kick things off, I was hoping to get your reaction to the spiel and kind of um, maybe if you could relay some of your initial reactions to when you first heard about ACE science and ACEs. So with the spiel that you just did, I already knew a lot about ACEs due to my early childhood education background. When I was taking my diversity class that they have is when I was fully introduced into ACEs, which is about a couple years ago now. So that was what, when I was 29, 30. So fairly recent with everything going on. And then we we had to watch this great TED Talk. I can't remember the name, but I know you do. Is it the Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris one? Yes. Yeah, she's amazing. She is. She just went really in-depth for the short amount of time that TED Talk was and hit so many points where I took the initiative on my own to see where I fall with the ACEs. And through birth up to 18 in my life, I score very high. Yeah, and... You know, I'm, I'm curious because I think it's this fine line you try to walk when you talk about ACEs where it doesn't need to be your destiny. It doesn't need to be this doom and gloom thing, but also kind of when you see a number like that, that's high and alarming. Yeah, I, I would just, I was wondering if you could just maybe speak to like your reaction to finding out your own number. And in, in some ways, this stuff feels intuitive. You know, it's like you have a tough childhood, you're more likely to experience challenges as an adult. But I think maybe what the ACEs study illustrates is just how direct that relationship is between your childhood and, and your adulthood. And I was just wondering if you could speak to any like revelations um, in terms of your own story. Well, it comes down to I got pregnant young. I had my first daughter at 19. I got pregnant during then in my senior year of high school. I graduated and walked. Now going, falling back to that, my mother was a drug addict 
and she, our house got raided several times with the police and the dogs and everything. So growing up in a small town, when you have a parent like that, you get labeled just as Mm. bad that you're going to be like that. Mm. And I always knew that I was never going to be like that for any of my kids. I expected to have kids at a later age, but you know, things happen. Yeah. And when I had my daughter, that just totally changed me on this path of healing. I really went into therapy. I took a ton of parenting classes and just really had that support with everything. Wow. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah. A lot of plot twists in life. And I mean, it sounds like from your childhood to having your first daughter, right? Daughter. Um, it just seems like you've had a really incredible turnaround. So I'm excited to unpack some of that during this episode and just kind of hear about, um, what really worked for you in terms of your healing process. Yeah. And, and maybe I, I'm, I'm also really curious to kind of dive into some of your work in early childhood education and being a mother. So I, I'm just curious if you might speak to how you kind of see ACEs show up in your work in the community, both, um, both as an early childhood educator and as an SPC? So as an early childhood educator, and work, I worked for a low-income preschool, Iamaka Preschool in Lone Pine. I saw a lot of families, low-income families, who are affected by ACEs, but they are not aware of what they are, essentially, because mm. the education, in a way, is so new. And to really teach that to a person who wouldn't, understand is the key difference as well. Totally. And I think that's a common theme is that this stuff is familiar to people, even if they don't know it by its more technical name, that like maybe the ACEs terminology is unfamiliar, but this concept of, um, of trauma and its effects across a lifetime is something that's really known. And maybe for the listeners out there, you could just talk a little bit about um, what life is like down in Lone Pine and kind of some of the challenges and some of the strengths in the community down there. Cause Inyo County is this vast County, um, huge geographically, a lot of spread out population centers. And I think the North part of the County and the South part of the County are, are different. And I was just wondering if you could maybe convey some of what life is like down there in Lone Pine. So Lone Pine life can be lonely if you're not used to it. You have to take time of your day to schedule grocery shopping because it is expensive at our one market in town. And financially, if you're struggling, that shopping will take once a month to either Bishop or Ridgecrest. I personally go to Ridgecrest because of the prices and everything is more affordable to my family and getting all the more nutritious items to eat versus all the junk, Mm. which is a struggle because junk foods more less expensive essentially to people who get food stamps and everything because a lot of our families on the reservation do get those programs they Mm. receive funds and everything for that to help with their family Mm. how long is the drive to Ridgecrest it if you're going 65, it's an hour and 15 minutes. Because, <laughs> of course, we'd only drive the speed limit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 10 and 2. 
Yeah, that's interesting kind of speaking to like the food desert, food sovereignty aspect of things. And, you know, I, I was wondering maybe if you could speak a little more about access to other resources, such as like healthcare and after school programs. So healthcare is more readily accessible now, but right. our local hospital is getting more funds and programs. They, I just got a newsletter and they have a new little program for uh, opioid addicts. Great. Which is really good because it's hitting Indian country really hard. We mm. just lost a young tribal member to opioids, mm. which is so sad. I, I just hate to see that. And then after school programs, there's not a whole lot. As an SPC, I've been working for after school programs and trying to get everything situated for this upcoming school year because those really impact on the youth and the ACEs and everything to help have a better, healthy and positive lifestyle for our youth. But with COVID and everything that hit us so hard, we weren't able to have an after-school program Mm. because the whole world was impacted and we really saw that trauma and everything come to the surface. Yeah. That's that's a great lead in for one of the things I was hoping to talk about, which is just um, life during COVID and that experience of, of kind of a collective trauma. But also I know for some people there were some silver linings there where they got to spend more quality time with their family and, and so forth. So um, I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about your experience of your experience going through the COVID-19 pandemic and what were some practices that kind of helped keep your mental and physical health strong? So what we did as a family, it it was a tough adjustment because who would have thought in the year 2020 we get hit with a plague? (laughs) We'd be living through a global pandemic. And so when they finally shut down the school and they shut down our offices, we basically had a family meeting. It's like, all right, girls, what, what concerns, what questions do you guys have? And they're like, well, are we ever going to go back to school? Will we see our friends? And things like that. And they really have no idea at the time what it's like because developmentally, they're not there yet. Mm. It's very hard to grasp that. But just answering the questions as best we could and making sure that the support was there needed mentally because as a teenager, you're going through so many changes as well. Hormones, Mm. body, everything. Your whole body is changing into this crazy network. And it's a very emotional time anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, so just having that support and communicating. I am a huge communicator. And I told them, I'm like, if you want to scream, let's scream. Let's cry. Let's laugh. I'm like... You want to hit something, go outside. Like <laughs> we need healthy outlets, but we need to guide those outlets as well. Um, we bought a punching bag. We nice. bought weights and we, we started to really put into our healthy physical fitness too. Cool. We started eating better. And at that time, our wellness center was open still to mm. appointments only for tribal members. So Great. that was really good. We we just put a lot of healthy exercise into our lives and just try to keep them busy as much as possible by being safe. That's excellent. And so it sounds like there were some pretty positive outcomes for you all, which is great to hear. 
And I wonder if you could kind of tie the pandemic into mental health. I know that this has been like a larger conversation and there's somewhat of a movement right now where people are just attempting to have more honest conversations about mental health and destigmatize mental health. So whatever direction you want to take it, like either the mental health of you and your family or things you're seeing in the community or with your students, um, just reflections on mental health in the pandemic. So mental health during the pandemic really brought up to the surface of people who didn't want to acknowledge that they had, they needed that extra support mentally because there is a huge stigma regarding mental health, unfortunately. But what we did as a family, we still, I told them, I was like, you know, depression is hitting. We see studies that girls 12 to 16 years of age were really having a hard time mentally. They're falling into really bad depressive states. And I told my girls, I said, you know, after I had my youngest daughter and when my mother and grandmother passed away within two months of each other, Mm. I fell into the baby blues. Yeah. I had really bad postpartum depression and then just dealing with everything. So it made me super aware of how I'm feeling. And I was watching my girls and my husband. I said, okay, mentally, they're okay right now. But some days they just struggled. They they didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to watch TV or mm. the normal things were not there. So I just pull them aside and be like, what can I do? Like, this isn't healthy. Your, your ray of sunshine is dimming. That's what I say. It's like your light. Your light is not on all the way. We need to bring it back. So how can I help? And then they tell me what they want to do. And I figure out with, because everything was shut down. I'm like, okay, we can order online for some stuff and just do crafts and things, simple mm. things that yeah. seem to really help. And I told them though, too, I said, you can't sleep all day. That is the biggest sign that I see that because I'll do that. I'll just sleep the day away. Yep. And I said, you can't do that. We have to have somewhat of a relative normal schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think, you know, specifically depression and anxiety is something that research currently tells us is, is really on the rise in our youth and is just kind of at all time highs. And, you know, I was just wondering if you could reflect on seeing that in your work and in the community and and maybe think of some of the reasons why that might be the case and what some potential solutions might be. I know that's a big ask to like cure, (laughs) cure depression and anxiety. And there is kind of that natural teenager hormonal roller coaster, right? But like beyond that, um, it seems like there are some very serious issues in the current generation right now with depression and anxiety and, maybe we could try and get into some of the ways that might be addressed. So first and foremost is to educate the parents. Hmm. A lot of parents in Indian country don't feel they have a problem or it's something we don't talk about. Hmm. Growing up when things were really bad, you don't talk about it. Because if you talked about it, that lets other people know and bad things could happen, such as the youth getting removed from the home or just Mm. other people poking their nose in where they won't be of assistance. So that is a huge thing. But 
for me with my upcoming programs is to just bring that awareness that it's okay. You're in a safe environment and anything we talk about stays with us as a group. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. And, and you're not the first person to bring this up to me. You know, I think that talking to a lot of my coworkers and friends in the indigenous community, it, it seems like a lot of people don't feel comfortable getting mental health treatment. A lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about it. I know that sometimes people are concerned about confidentiality or, or going to see a therapist for those reasons and, and some of the other factors you mentioned like gossip. So yeah, do you feel like that's something that might be changing or if it's not, what could be done to change it? I really hope it changes, but living in a small community is one of the things that is a negative with some of these things because in the city you could get lost. Yeah. Not everyone knows you, not everyone knows who you're related to or where you live. Yeah. So those factors, but just really establishing that positive relationship you have with the community and where you really know that what confidential stuff you tell me stays with me because mm. a lot of things that people do tell me I don't share I'm like I understand what you're going through because I grew up in a similar situation and my whole goal is is to have that youth break those generational cycles mm. that is my whole goal because there are a future whether we like it or not and so we really need to treasure and take care of our future generation so they could do something better than us. Mm, that's and, powerful. And that's why I tell my girls, I said, I want you to be better than me, better than your dad, better than your grandparents. Our ancestors fought very hard and they died. Like you are our future leaders of this world and you need to make a good positive impact. Yeah. The youth are the future and I like what you said about kind of breaking the cycle of gossip, you know, and I wonder too if community members like you who are are going to therapy, you said you're going to therapy, right? I go to therapy off and on. Nice. That's great. I, I'm in therapy as well, and it's kind of a newer development for me, and um, I figured I should practice what I preach if I'm kind of advocating for mental health treatment. But yeah, you know, I wonder if... Um, community members like you going to therapy and having positive results and being in that sort of leadership role. I wonder if that's going to have a positive influence on people. And I'm also curious about, I know there's been this big uptick in uh, telehealth uh, therapy treatment during the pandemic. So people getting on the phone and I wonder if that could be something in these small communities where people are worried about gossip, where it's like if you're talking to someone on the phone who's in Fresno or Visalia or whatever, if maybe that could alleviate some of those fears about the word getting out or something like that. Do you think there's any um, chance of something like that catching on or does it feel like kind of far-fetched? No, I know. Well, it depends what type of insurance you have unfortunately like we're pretty good working with OVCDC we have pretty good insurance but if someone is receiving Medi-Cal or California Wellness their options aren't as great but I do know they were having a telehealth with Toyabi for a time during the pandemic and that okay. a lot of resources I saw on social media 
phone numbers and hotlines were out there to people. Mm, great. Which is really good. But then you have to actually think about the individual themselves. Like, do they feel comfortable talking? Because mm. I don't know if you experienced this, but in Indian country, we're not the most friendly at times talking to complete strangers because that trust isn't there. And we're like, well, what are you going to do with it? Mm, totally. And there, I think there's a lot of precedent for that mistrust, you know, and that was something that was interesting for me when I started working here is like it was, and you talked about it earlier, like your relationships and your relationality to other people is really important. And people were kind of curious about me. And a lot of the questions I got were about like, where do I come from and what are my interests? And like people sort of wanted to check me out before they opened up to me or like sort of get a feel for where I was at and where I was coming from. And that's something I, I feel like I can really appreciate. Um, and yeah, I think it plays a role in what we're talking about now and just trying to, people don't disclose things um, very easily. And I think there's a lot of reason for that. And I think it's that's a tough barrier to break down. So I really appreciate you speaking about your own experiences with that. Um, yeah. And if you're around a lot of elders, they will always ask you who you are, where you come from, where do you live, and what do you do with our Native people? Yeah, totally. And I, I think my presence, sometimes people are like a little bit confused by me when I come to the door at the TANF office or whatever. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a good experience. And I, I think that those questions are way more important than a lot of the um, conversations I would have if I was coming into a mostly white community, you know, and I really appreciate that, like giving that context of like, this is where I come from. And I think that sometimes there's this dual relationships thing with like the work that we're in now, um, generally with helping professions where you're almost expected to check your personal experiences at the door. And when you're at work, you're this professional. And then when you're at home, that's when you're yourself. And I think sometimes that can be a really challenging dichotomy of like your personal experiences make you who you are. They form your values. Um, they inform the way you interact with other people. So I know that's been a bit of a challenge for me, that like dual relationships piece. And I was wondering if you have any feelings about that as well. So for me in my work environment, because each site is different through OVCDC, very site specific is that I walk a fine line, as I put it, between being a SPC and a Lone Pine tribal member and a parent advocate mm. and a community member for the reservation and for the town. So as you said before, lots of mini hats. But I have learned if I am in deep conversation and my personal feelings are arising, I will say I'm speaking to you as a tribal member. Interesting. Not as an SPC. So whatever I say is as a tribal member. So you speak whatever hat you're wearing. Yes. That's and then I will go back okay, and say, all right, I'm speaking to you as an SPC and this is what we can do. I wonder if we can get you some actual hats that say SPC. 
Lone Pine Tribal member. No, that's that's so great to hear you say, and that's something I'd like to incorporate into my own practice because I think it is a factor in these small communities. You know, you see someone at work at the TANF office or whatever, and then you see them at the grocery store afterwards or at, you know, a dinner or whatever. So I, I do think you're kind of asked to navigate all these different worlds that have a different set of um, kind of a different code and a different way of being in, in each one. So, yeah, I appreciate your reflections on that. And it's hard because as individuals living in a Native community, you can't just check I'm completely an SPC today because that's just not how it works because you're not a robot and you have to really feel and empathize with the community you're helping. Totally. And that's something I'm so interested in social work, you know, and I've even heard about people getting criticized or getting um, essentially like, uh, dinged by their supervisor for being making too many personal connections or being too emotionally invested in the work. And to me, that's kind of wild. Like it's to me, a lot of us are drawn to this work because we care and and our personal experiences do shine in, in what we do and we all have strengths. And yeah, I just think that's those are tricky waters to navigate. And I yeah, I appreciate your reflections on that. And it always is because communication is really the key and if you ask the Lone Pine site how well I communicate and they're like she communicates a lot and asks so many questions <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely guilty of over communicating myself but I've I, I'm consistently blown away at how much that's kind of the focal point in arguments amongst adults and how many adults um, are still working on that communication piece. And it's hard. It is very hard because it's hard to really get into those difficult, hard, really hard conversations, especially in a marriage or relationships with your kids and outside. It It's very trying, but you learn how to do it. So mm. when you, those hard situations come across, you're able to really effectively respond Absolutely. Any tips for people out there who are working on their communication, especially talking about hard stuff? That sometimes you need to tell the person you're having that hard conversation is that I need five minutes. Mm. Give me five minutes, collect my thoughts, because I am going to say something that I probably won't regret, but it will really be hurtful. Versus more of a positive resolution. Interesting. So cool down, articulate your points, things like that. That's, I think that's great advice. So I wanted to move a little bit towards some education stuff. And just to hear some of your ideas related to your, um, your own education and what you've seen uh, in your work professionally. But yeah, I would just was wondering if you could talk about what lessons you've learned from your work in childhood development and um, what advice you would give to parents out there um, who have young children. So with my work and learning as much as I do, it is great courses to take as a parent because you learn so much from their physical development to their emotional and mental development and all these what they call domains that have social playing etc it it goes really in depth and as a parent learning all this stuff and realizing the not so great things I did with my oldest because whether we like it or not 
our oldest children are kind of our test subjects <laughs> while we're yep. parenting. So like, for instance, fast food all the time. I'm guilty. It was easy. I worked here in Bishop commuting. I was like, all right, let's get McDonald's. But now as I reflect, that's not a great way to do things or spanking a lot. She is my strong-willed child, my oldest. We butt heads. Oh, yeah. But she will become, hopefully, a great leader. Even to this day, is just like having restraint mm. to not argue back. Because mm. I used to have to literally chase after her. Yeah. Because she'd be like, all right, bye, mom. And I'm like, no, not yet. <laughs> and then she'd just start these little rebellions with like kicking my seat in the car and just, it's how you react. Yeah. <laughs> when you have a child like that. Yeah. And I mean, since you had your firstborn pretty young, I'd imagine that you two did a lot of growing. Uh, there was like a parallel growth process there. And... Yes. When you have a child that's just 19 years apart, you're a baby yourself. And we see a lot of girls have kids even younger at 16, 15 and developmentally you're not there yet. Mm. And people are probably, when they hear this, like, oh, what do you mean I'm not there yet? I'm like, well, development, so you're not there. That's just fat. That's yeah, how our your body... frontal lobe is still... <laughs> yes, and everything's still developing, but and it's so much harder to make clearer decisions. Mm. The self-regulation piece. Yes, the yeah. self-regulation piece is key. And I think, fortunately for me, I don't really like this phrase of growing up young, but I was raised by my grandparents. Mm. And I came into their life when they're in their mid-60s. Mm. That's pretty fairly old to have the newborn. Yeah. Yes. So I, when I hit nine, I had to start helping them pay bills. Wow. I learned the process of doing money orders, how to check the mail, how to check the propane and everything because they needed that help. Yeah. And then when my grandfather died, when I was 16, I had to actually take over everything to help my grandmother wow. with her social security checks, getting her widow's pension and everything. And I had, I had good support from my aunt, but she lived at the time three hours away Wow! and I was there. So it was just a lot of stuff I already knew how to do when I had my daughter. Yeah. But still, when your friends are graduating and going to college, yeah, and you're gonna have a baby, wow, it's totally not the same, yeah. And like you said, self-regulation and everything wasn't quite there. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot to ask of a young kid. Do you feel like now those skills you're you're glad to have those skills, or do you still kind of have some feelings of like feeling like you missed out on normal kid stuff? It's taken time to make peace yeah. with the things I wasn't allowed or missed out on. Mm. It's taken some time, but because me and my daughter have these conversations and she's like, well, I didn't mean to ruin your life. And I'm like, baby girl, you're 13. You're having emotions right now. <laughs> I was like, I told her, especially when COVID hit, she, they just went through a lot. And I said, no, you are never my regret in this whole life. Mm. At all, because you made me into the person I am today. That's such a great outlook. Yeah. I think 13 years old can be kind of a drama llama age. Um, 
you know, as I see her peers and stuff, she's not really drama llama. She's kind of angry. <laughs> she's, yeah. a, she's a good fighter and, yeah. and debater and everything. Nice. I just tell her, I'm like, you know, go talk to some other adult. <laughs> go talk to your grandma, your grandpa. Go talk to dad. Why you, why you have to do that? But I know that in each parent's life, they have their child who will take it more on a certain parent or grandparent because mm. they feel safe. It's a lot of all these emotions at you. and But as a parent, sometimes that is super hard to yeah. handle after a long day and everything. For instance, last week, I just needed 10 minutes yeah. for an assignment. It'll take me 10 minutes to finish, but she just needed some type of something. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to lose it. We need a break. But I did lose it a little. So I just went in my room. I'm like, ah. And, and my husband's like, you know, she does it on purpose. I go, I'm aware, but I just <laughs> needed that 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Those situations where you're like, I know that intellectually, but like I've right now, like it's, yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I think, um, one point you raised, which I think is, is interesting is, um, just that you were largely raised by your grandparents. And I think that that's something that's a lot more common in indigenous communities. Maybe it's like to not get raised by, um, your biological parents, but to have these other figures in the community, be it your grandparents or an auntie who kind of, um, are in that primary parenting role. And something I think is that that relates to is like in the a science, um, they've shown that like a big part of building resilience is just having that one figure in your life. It doesn't really matter who it is, but like an adult who really, um, you know, is there to support you, shows interest in you, who, um, listens to you, who like shows up for you in all those ways. So yeah, I was just wondering if, if you could speak to that kind of like maybe, um, different family structures and, and those adults in your life who may not be your parents who have a positive influence. So when they, when people would ask me growing up, my friends, they had their parents and they'd be like, oh, you know, your mom and dad. And I'd be like, no. And they look at you with this look of pity. And, I, and at the time, I didn't ever realize what that look was because mm. I was like five, six years old. It's like, yeah, my grandma, grandpa, you know, thinking that was normal. But as you get older, it wasn't very common at the time I was growing up as I mm. see it now. And they were like, well, why are you with your grandparents? And I was very honest. I said, well, my mother was in jail with me when she was pregnant with me. And they're like, oh, you were born in jail? I go, no. They, <laughs> they got her to Northern Inyo and my aunt, who I'm named after, picked me up and took me to my grandparents. And they're like, oh, you weren't born in jail? I was like, no, I was born in the hospital. And they're like, oh, so you were not born in jail. I'm like, yes, I was not born in jail. <laughs> and I was like, why do you keep asking? It's like, well, you were in jail. I go, technically, I was in jail, but not for me. But with that being said, she was in and out of my life. She had a really bad drug addiction, which eventually took her life at the age of 45, mm -hmm. which is very young. And I made peace with that. But moving on, 
is where I don't understand what it's like to be raised by your by parents. Mm. And I see that reflected in my parenting. Interesting. But my husband was raised by his parents. And then he will tell me, he's like, babe, you have to remember you weren't raised by your parents. I go, oh, yeah, I was raised by elders. Mm. And so I have to take a step back and be like, okay, but the ones who we see are raising their grandkids, I understand. And mm. I am so thankful my grandparents took me in because mm. if they didn't, I would have been put up for adoption. Yeah. But they took the time. They just took us in and everything. And I was raised by my grandparents. And I think they were happy about it too. And never felt like I was a chore or anything. I had to help a whole lot. But it sounds like old. you were paying bills at nine and doing tasks. And yeah. And it's like, I didn't think anything of it until I got older. And I'd be like, well, I don't want to do this. I want to go do something else. Yeah. Which is totally normal to have that selfish kid need. Yeah. That is. Yeah. Kids are selfish and they have every right to be. But then I was at times I'd be like, I want to be selfish. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, that must've been a lot to explain as a young kid and yeah, shout out Auntie Esther. sounds like she was a good influence. She was. And fortunately they moved back. Her and my uncle moved back and they're my girls' grandparents because oh, both of my parents are past and they love that role. And I'm so fortunate for that, for them awesome. to be close because it helps with with my girls and transporting them to and from as everything's opening up. Yeah. How do you think, like what lessons did you learn kind of being raised by elders and by people who are sort of a part of a different generation? Like, what do you think they instilled in you that you bring to your parenting and your like worldview currently? Uh, I'm hardly ever late. Nice. We were early a lot and that you always had to be respectful and be quiet. Hmm. And just being really empathetic and always caring for the elders. To this day, I make sure if I see whether whatever race they are, if they're like having lots of groceries, I will just look and see if they need that extra help. Mm, totally. <laughs> and everything. I keep a more eye out for the elders and for the really little guys. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Those sound like great values. What would you tell to, or sorry, let me rephrase this. What do you wish parents knew about ACEs? That it's not their fault. Yeah. That to get the education and the help to help you become a better person, which results into a better parent for your child. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something interesting there where like obviously preventing these things from ever happening is like, the best way to go about um, avoiding more ACEs and more trauma and kind of all of the things that are associated with that. But also there's this inevitability with like trauma is a fact of life, you know, and I like that quote, like um, trauma is a fact of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. So if there are these things that happen that are problematic, I think like figuring out how to respond to them can be difficult, especially when there is kind of that code of like, um, 
or that culture of like, we're not going to talk about our problems. We're just going to be stoic and work through them. So, yeah, I wonder what you might say to someone who has some ACEs or is dealing with their own trauma history, like what advice you might give them and um, what, what could be helpful for them to hear? Well, like I said, telling them it's not your fault. That what you can do now, either the positive or the negative influence is really up to you. And just bringing that awareness and to really be empathetic with that person because I see a lot of people, our people struggle with addiction and that their their parents are raising their kids because of that. And I know some families whose parents go in and out of rehab and every time they come out, I'm like, Sally, do you keep it up? If you need anything, let me know. I am so proud of you for taking this. And then they relapse and then I see them and they're like, ah, da, da, da. I'm like, no, it's okay. Do you need help? Yeah. Here's a phone number. Let's get you situation dealt with. What about your kids? Where are your kids at? And so our house is the house of safety in a way. We have, we've had kids come in and out that stay a few nights to stay weeks on end because they needed that safe place till their parents got their stuff together where they're able to parent again. Awesome. That's so great. Yeah. And kind of what you spoke to there about um, shame. I think shame is such a big part of addiction and the spiral and the cycle of, yeah, just dealing with the stigma. And, um, you know, I think sometimes that shame can cause people to relapse again. It's kind of this, yeah, this really sad cycle that is really common. And, you know, in conversations I've had with like the people over at Toyabi, it sounds like there's been this huge uptick in addiction and need for counseling since the onset of COVID. And yeah, do you have any reflections on the relationship between trauma and addiction? It's there because where do you turn to to hurt, to make your pain go away? A lot of people turn to drinking, to drugs, to binge eating too. Yeah. Overeating is a big thing that's not quite aware as it should be, but they have so much pain inside of them that they cannot figure out a healthy way to heal it and let it go. And it's hard. All that pain is hard to deal with, whether you haven't experienced trauma or if you experience it so severe, it's crippling. And just having a person who is always by your side saying, you can do this. I am here that let me help you. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And I think in a lot of these circumstances, it's just any escape from being yourself and having to relive these things in your past, even if it's really destructive escape, you know, people are going to take that route. And yeah, you know, I think these are real, very real issues and very pertinent right now with the pandemic. And, you know, I think my heart really goes out to people who are struggling with these issues. And I hope that we can continue to destigmatize them and get resources to people like you were saying. Yeah, I just, I, you have so many good things to say. I realize that I've been, haven't gotten to some of the content I want to get to, but, um, yeah, I was wondering if you could just speak to 
sort of your indigenous identity and how it's shaped some of your ideas around education um, and what values you find really important as an educator? So my grandfather was part of the boarding school. So we did not grow up our traditional way whatsoever. And then we were really pushed to go to Sunday school at church and everything. And deep down inside of me, that never sat. Hmm. That I always rebelled yeah. against going. And I still do. But with that being said, when I became a mom, that is really when I dug in deep. It's like, okay, I identify truly being indigenous. What things do I need to learn to really be part of my culture and who I am as a person? And so we really say our prayers in the morning. We smudge a lot when we just need that cleansing. We just don't feel good inside. Mm. We take healing trips to Koso Hot Springs twice a year, part of our whole to heal and restart and everything is really good. And then with the education system, our public school education is not the greatest representing indigenous identities. Bishop has it great. They have language incorporated. They have the Head Start here incorporating the culture, which is awesome. But in Lone Pine, there's really nothing, which is so sad because I've been trying to get even a native liaison with the schools. Mm. And that keeps it. I keep being heard. We're working on it. We're working on it. Mm. And I'm like, well, as a parent, it should have been here. Yeah. There should have never been a vacant spot. Yeah. Because we have a lot of students who are indigenous. Yeah. And they're not aware of their identity as much as I'd like to see. And so one of my goals is to bring more of that into our Lone Pine area. Mm. And then... There, there's just so much history here that is not taught. You could teach our history at, ver- at all the levels of education, but with teachers and everything, teach some teachers are open to it, some are not. As a parent, when my girls entered preschool, I'd volunteer. Be yeah. like, hey, California Indian Day is coming up. Let's bring some of that culture and everything into it and families and the teachers were happy but then there were some teachers as they got older it's like well we don't have time I said what do you mean you don't have time we don't have time we have to make sure all the standards and everything are there it's like I'm like all right it's like you have time to teach them quadratic equations but not the history of the land they're walking on yes and that is the whole thing though is I see it is that we, they know we exist, but they don't understand fully of who we are as people. Because when you say, oh, I live on the reservation, and they're like, what? You mm. live on the res? I go, yeah, I live on the reservation. It's a beautiful place. They're like, oh, aren't there druggies there? The cops there? I was like, not anymore than town. It's just this whole stigma with it as well, which is so mind boggling. (laughs) Just shaking my head. I'm like, okay, well you have a good day. Totally. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot in there. And I think for me, that's been a, I kind of feel like maybe I've had the wool to some extent pulled back over my eyes of like, 
I learned this version of history in school and the way it's presented to you is like, it's fact. This is what happened. And in my adult life and in my continuing education, you know, I've come to the realization that there's all this, there's this completely different narrative that feels a lot closer to the truth than what I learned. And for me, it's, it's just illuminated a lot of things. And, and I wonder how, like teaching a different version of history in school, I think could be really powerful. And I've been reading and looking at some different educational curriculum that has been written by indigenous peoples and, and talks about history in a different way. And I wonder how that might be implemented and how we could make that happen uh, more quickly and how it could also be specific to this area um, so that people feel like history is something that's not just about old dead white people, that it's kind of more inclusive and um, more specific to this area. I have deep conversations with my husband regarding this because his parents were teachers, superintendent, principals. And so he he always reminds me, which is true, that public schools are a business. Yeah. And when you have school board elections happening and who get elected, there's not a whole lot of diversity. Mm -hmm. They are happy with the way things are and everything because it's the way it has always been. Mm. And I think with the whole George Floyd Mm. incident, how all that occurred, how now we're finding our babies in Canada, how that's happening and bringing more of that awareness to it i had people Mm. stop me the other day they're like what do you think of the boarding school i'm like what part didn't you know yeah but with indian country that we know this yeah it's just that the other societies don't know this because it's not taught in our education system yeah and what i have learned and discovered why teach all the negative things yeah I saw this recently and I reposted it on the Instagram of like, and I'm maybe not going to word this the best. I think this is a really interesting topic, but like uh, to paraphrase, I think it's the like, it's the like, we need to celebrate indigenous brilliance and success as much as we talk about trauma. And I think there is a lot of rhetoric and a lot of dialogue right now that really centers, um, all the trauma and all the tragedies in the history of indigenous people, which is, I mean, that's a vast topic. And it's interesting to try and hold that concurrently with like these ideas of like, people don't talk enough about all the amazing contributions of indigenous people to society. Topa Spoonhunter recommended this book to me that I've been loving that just talks all about all the um, just kind of like inventions and ideas that indigenous people have given to society. And one of the biggest ones is that um, the Iroquois people really influenced the version of democracy that mm-hmm. we use today. So like our gov- our entire governmental structure is, is based on a lot of these indigenous ideas and just like so many things from like, you know, the cultivation of potatoes to canoes and kayaks to hammocks to like, pretty much every great food that we enjoy, like barbecuing and eating shellfish and um, just all these like really amazing things that we enjoy today can be attributed to indigenous people and there's not credit given. So I don't know, sorry, end of rant, but I wonder how you, if you have any feelings about how we can hold these two things up at the same time, like the, um, the history and 
all of the tragedy there, but as well as all of the like greatness and brilliance and um, yeah. So what I tell my girls is that, yeah, you have a bad experience, but what are you going to do with it? Mm. What is your positive impact going to be? Mm. And so growing up, I've always been, I've always done well academically. Nice. That's just how I am. Yeah. And I remember my grandpa telling me, he's like, sis, you take that white man education and you use it against them. And he very rarely spoke that way, but it was after one of my conferences where they kept telling me I had to speak up. I was too quiet Mm. that I needed to really read really loud. Yeah. And for him, he was a quiet man. And a lot of our indigenous folk, they're quiet. Yeah. Unless we get a really laughing. That's a whole nother topic. But we're quiet people. But if we are outraged and everything, you should take aware of that, of why we are angry. Take an account of what is happening within our society as a whole. Mm. With everything. Like when the new administration was elected, it was so nice to see a brown woman as vice president Mm. because I'm brown. Yeah. It's like, feels really good to see someone that looks like you in such a high position of power Mm. with everything. And then that's what I want. I want more of diversity in our government positions and our school boards that affect our youth because our youth, like I said, is our future and how are they represented? Are they heard? Are they not heard? Because also it comes down to kids are to be seen and not heard. Mm. I despise that saying, but I'm guilty of using that when my kids are just like out of control. I'm like, Mm. girls, kids are to be seen and not heard. And they roll their eyes. They're like, whatever, mom. (laughs) But we forget that they're human. They should have a voice. Yeah. With everything because... A lot of abuse, when when abuse happens, they'll start saying something. Mm. But a lot of times that abuse is not heard from them. They're like, oh, you're fine. We don't know what you're talking about. No, it's fine. We don't take an account of their voice. Mm. And as a parent, when I mess up with my girls, I'm like, girls, I'm sorry. They're like, we know you are. I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have said it. But no, I always say I'm sorry. Cool. Because they're people too. And how can they learn to say sorry to people and mean it? Mm. Yeah, you're role modeling what it's like to be human and that kind of thing. Yeah, we all mess up at no matter what age we are. For sure. Yeah. Oh, that's so much great stuff in there. I really appreciate those reflections about representation and representation mattering. Yeah, thank you. Um, The next topic I was hoping to dive into was trauma-informed care. And I think trauma-informed care is a really exciting semi-new development that's really kind of taking hold and, and gaining some momentum. So... Trauma-informed care kind of has some basic tenets, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But 
one of the kind of vignettes or portraits of effective trauma-informed care is the Menominee tribe. And just to set the table a little bit, um, the Menominee Reservation is home to about 4,000-year-old members. It's in present-day eastern Wisconsin. Um, they're a tribe that a lot of their sustenance is based on the wild rice out there in the lakes. And, yeah, in 2010, they were ranked 72 out of 72 for health outcomes in the state. So they had a lot of issues with health and addiction and a lot of issues related to colonization. And they allocated a lot of grant money to kind of try this new project around circa 2010. And they achieved really remarkable results really fast. So uh, if you haven't, I really recommend checking out this video. Um, it's called Menominee Nation's Path to Health Heals Invisible Wounds. You can find it on YouTube. And just, just really incredible stuff. So what they did is they got together and they are able to form a really cohesive uh, coalition where everyone is trained on this stuff in the Menominee Reservation from staff at the schools to people in the dental clinic to police officers to elders. Like everyone has a training in trauma-informed care there. And yeah, they've been able to achieve really remarkable results. And they've done that in a few ways. Some of it's like when the kids come into school in the morning, they see a series of faces, almost like emojis, and they have to pick whichever one they are for that day. So that's like a small example of trauma-informed care. But bigger example is they have their dental clinic and their like behavioral health, mental health clinic is built into the school as well. So especially like lower income kids or just anyone who needs it, they don't have to travel. They can just go walk over to the next building. Um, and yeah, just, just a lot of examples of how this works They're They've changed their discipline, discipline system to be less punitive and yeah, some of their outcomes, uh, are pretty wild. Their, um, high school graduation rate increased from 60% to 85%, uh, teenage birth rates dropped, uh, from 20 to five. And over the past decade, substance use has dramatically decreased um, an increased amount of students have entered post-secondary education. School suspension and expulsion have dramatically decreased. Restorative practices have been really impactful and just contributed to a visible change in students' resiliency and health. So um, all these awesome metrics, and um, by any account, I think it's, it's a, a story of success and yeah, you know, I think what this really ties into, too, I don't know, Esther, if you've ever seen the numbers on the disproportionality and suspension rates for Native students, but, like, rethinking the way we do discipline in school, um, rethinking the way we approach stuff like trauma and ACEs in school. So just, um, I know that you've seen the video, so I just kind of want to get your initial thoughts on the video and then maybe some reflections on how we might apply some of these ideas out here, if possible. What they're doing is such a great thing, especially when you have the numbers to back up what they are doing. It just shows proof they are being very successful with trauma-informed care. And that is how you decrease the rates for everything, is to inform everyone, but to inform them in the way that they will understand because every person's education is very different, unfortunately. It's not the same across the board. And with 
uh, native youth suspension rates. I saw in Lone Pine, uh, it's been about a year, the native boys in Lone Pine are suspender higher than Bishop. Wow. Yes. And when I saw that number, I was like, why? Why is that? Interesting. So more, just to give people context, uh, Bishop has a lot bigger of a population. Um, what's the population of Lone Pine? Uh, 2,000. Okay. And Bishop, the census says like 4,000, but I think it's a lot bigger than that. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that the number of native youth, native boys suspended in Lone Pine is higher than the number in Bishop. Yes. Wow. And to me, that says something. It says something that we need to change because no kids should really get suspended. And if they are getting suspended, why? What action are they getting suspended for? What preventive measures can we help them? Are they just like acting out because their home life basically sucks? Yeah. And that's where that trauma-informed care comes in because you could punish, 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 but what are you doing Totally for a change? I think that's such a good point, and I think that's such a big uh, point of trauma-informed care, right? Is like every human behavior makes sense in context. So if you're not making an effort to understand this person, where they're coming from, maybe the why behind their actions and just punishing them, I think it creates this relationship where there's a lot more friction and a lot more conflict. And um, yeah, I I think, you know, I I sit in some meetings and there's a big push to bring more trauma-informed care to Bishop and a few of the local organizations here are partnering together to try to use some of this modeling in our institutions. And I'm really curious to see how it works. And something that I think about with the Menominee tribe is I think it worked so well for them because it was really comprehensive, right? And they had the funds to do it uh, for everyone, not just in one or two places. So I wonder how we might, um, I don't think it's possible for us to go all in on it in the same way they did, but how we might apply some of these principles uh, in education and beyond. Yeah, you start off small. And then you plant that seed and eventually grows. And I love how they do start off small with the youth. Because if you could catch them young, like they said, the chances are higher for a positive impact, less ACEs, more uh, self-care strategies and coping mechanisms is good. That is what we want for all the youth, not just Native youth, but everyone, because they will be here when we are not, essentially. They're our future with everything. And I just love how they have their calm down room. Yeah. And I was like, I want a calm down room. We need a safe space where we could calm down or we can act out and just let our fr- frustration go instead of internalizing it and letting it just get bigger and bigger and then you combust. Totally. Yeah, I, l- I love that concept and... I really liked how the school there is run by the two brothers. There's like the one who runs the clinic and the one who runs the academic side of things. And yeah, just great, great work happening over there. And another thing that I liked that they integrated was, um, and this is one of the tenets of trauma-informed care is uh, cultural, historical, and gender issues are acknowledged. So they did a lot more of like, just even on the walls, you know, you'll see a lot more, um, stuff in native language and more cultural representation just in the school painted on murals and 
Um, I think it kind of gets back to what you said earlier of like representation matters. Um, so I was hoping really quick just to, for the listeners to give people an idea of like the six tenets of trauma-informed care. Uh, this can be found on the CDC website, and I think there's a nice graphic to go along with it. But the tenets are one, safety, two, trustworthiness and transparency, three, peer support, four, collaboration and mutuality, five, empowerment, voice and choice, six, cultural, historical and gender issues. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of literature out there on trauma-informed care. I really recommend you Google it if you get the opportunity. And one of the things I really like about it is that that piece of, of collaboration. And, um, you know, it, I think it can be represented in this shift of going from like, instead of saying what's wrong with you, saying what happened to you. And I think that's also scalable, you know, that applies to one-on-one -on -one reactions, like in work as an SPC with participants, but that also, I think, can apply to broader groups of people and communities. And just like, instead of being like, oh, this behavior drives me crazy, being like, why is this behavior coming up and what might be the context for that? Um, so yeah, thoughts, thoughts on any of that? That is just an automatic response I see in the Valley is like, what's wrong with you? Instead of saying, what happened? How can I help you? And that is really reflective on who we are in this valley. We have a lot of conservative people, very old school, traditional, not to ask what happened instead of what's wrong. And that is lost within our school districts as well because it trickles down unfortunately. And I've had teachers in the past be like, well, I know what's wrong with you because I have an older brother and he had a hard time in school and acting out and everything. And they'll be like, well, I know what's wrong with you because you're his sister and you're just going to act exactly like him. And I was like, whoa, you don't know me. Yeah, I'm my own person. <laughs> yes, but unfortunately, we get labeled like that because it is a small community. And that I am trying to break as a community member, tribal member, SPC, in all aspects of my life. Because it's not fair to that child or individual. It is not their fault that their parent's an addict. Yeah. You are not going to be like your parent, we hope. Yeah. Things do happen, but what can you do to help heal yourself? Or you're not going to act out in school because your old, older sibling acted out in school. Like, we yeah. are very different people. And I tell my girls because they are at a hard age. But sometimes they get frustrated. It's like, my friends, they're being so dumb. I don't know what's wrong with them. I go, no. Look at what they're going through. What's happening to them to make them feel this way or act toward you? Mm. So you can't just be like, what's wrong with them? What's wrong yeah. with you then? <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with you that you're judging me like this? <laughs> yes, I said you guys, and I tell them like, you guys are a hard age. Yeah. And they're like, we know, mom, you tell us this all the time. I go, I know, because you need to be reminded that you're at a hard age, developmentally, socially, everything is hard at this age. Yeah. I personally would not go back to middle school or high school. <laughs> yeah. 
Middle school can be vicious. Yes, I think even more so now with social media and everything, because that is something we didn't have to deal with. That was still so new and expensive that hardly anyone could afford it. Yeah. I think that age too, there's so many insecurities and a lot of that's being taken out on other people socially. And there's a lot of hormones flying around and yeah, it just seems like a very challenging age. So big shout out to the middle school teachers. You go through a lot. Yes, they do. And I tell them when, when we were at home learning, I was the first, I'm like, what can I do to help you guys? Like through work, I can assist as a parent. I could kind of assist because of the COVID restrictions And then the same questions when they started back up going to in-person school full-time. Like, okay, what can I help to make this adjustment easier? Mm. I was like, well, we're not too worried about your girls. But you can maybe get some more resources to these families or reach out to them. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. Awesome. Um, if it's all right with you, I think I'm going to move on to the next video that I wanted to bring up for this. And, um, I want to put in a plug for these videos and they're put on by, um, the center of the developing child, um, at Harvard university, uh, center for the developing child at Harvard university. And they have these really wonderful videos that are these short little snippets. They're each about two minutes and change. Um, And the three I'd really recommend are on the topic of resilience. So there's the science of resilience, there's what is resilience, and there's how resilience is built. And um, as someone who does a lot of reading and thinking about this stuff, um, resilience is actually a really tricky topic. I think it's really difficult to pin down. It's a word that people throw out and kind of bandy around all the time and not always correctly. So I've been thinking and trying to... um, get some input on people smarter from people smarter than myself about what resilience really is and trying to pin it down. And I really like some of the content in these videos. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions about resilience is it's this like thing that you're born with or you're not. And I think the reality is it's really something that can be built over time. And there's been studies done about like what ingredients kind of contribute to resilience and some of that has to do with those things we mentioned earlier. So like having that feeling of autonomy or agency, having supportive relationships with adults, um, having good wellness habits. So I really like this as a concept of like kind of teaching kids about building resilience and how to become a more resilient human. So I wanted to just read a quote about that and get your reactions to the quote. So we define resilience as a good outcome in the face of adversity. The extent to which we can build capacities in all children early in their lives to be able to deal with whatever bumps in the road or major obstacles may be coming down the track. That's an investment in building strong human capital and healthy, productive adults. Like having a parent with mental illness, growing up in a very socioeconomically disadvantaged community, going to schools that are not good, being exposed to violence in the neighborhood or the home. Uh, That all ties into this idea that resilience is the ability or set of capacities for positive adaptation, allowing you to keep in balance. That is a lot. (laughs) I was just thinking that. Resilience to me is basically the trauma you go through, whether it's not as much to versus so much. 
And it really is the outcome on how you become as a person. Because if you become an addict because of your trauma, your resilience is still building. You're not quite there yet. You need your extra help. But once you succeed to becoming sober sober and doing your red road, your resilience is there. And then it's just a never-ending cycle. Because I had a lot of friends. Their parents got divorced. And to me, that wasn't a big thing because I never had my parents. I had my grandparents. And I was like, oh, but I still felt bad because I saw that pain they were experiencing. Mm. And then I was like, well, I hope I never have to experience divorce. But that builds up a person's resilience as well on how well they handle their parents' divorce and what choices they make. Mm. But even suffering through illness, being chronically sick, your resilience is building. And they always say with us indigenous people, our resilience is there because of our ancestors. They literally, there was a genocide and we're still here. So I believe that as indigenous people, our resilience is there. It's just not awoken yet. Mm. It's just still there, like in a hibernation state. Interesting. To me, and that once something hits, that is when it starts blooming and then you can really feel it empower you. Because from my experience, one day I literally woke up and I was like, I can do this. I could be the best mom I could be being at 19. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And everything. I'm like, people judged and hated on me, but I'm like, I am going to prove them wrong. And that is my whole thing. My whole life is that I am going to prove you wrong. Mm. And that's where my husband says, we're not out to start revolutions. And I was like, not yet, but it's there. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I like what you said about how you know, that this is this quality that a lot of people might have dormant in them that's going to, um, that can be awoken and, you know, like thinking about what we can do to awaken that in, in people. And like this idea of like, okay, I'm running into an obstacle now, but I've been through all this other stuff in my life that's given me this toolkit that helps me get through this next set of problems. And, um, an- another thing you said about historical trauma, I, I found really interesting and there's a lot of science now about how through epigenetics, essentially like um, trauma of generations past can get passed forward to people. So they're born um, with that historical trauma in inside their genes, essentially. And um, that's something I think that science to me is, is pretty wild that um, even through multiple generations, through people you might not have even known, their experiences are affecting your experiences. And I think that really kind of ties into like the seven generations concept and, and stuff like that. So I was wondering if you had any feelings about the epigenetics concept. I believe it's a real thing because when I when the news was just so blasted about the boarding schools and finding those babies, I literally broke down and... My husband's like, what's wrong? I said, those babies, I feel them as a mother, as an indigenous person and what they've done. They 
they treated them like trash. Basically, we were not humans to them. So that was a real triggering and I, that was just heavy in my soul and like those babies. I I absolutely love babies of all races. Yeah. I'm like, yes, I will hold your baby and love it. <laughs> but I will give it back. <laughs> yeah. But that that is a huge thing. And then you see it within our culture, the lack of knowledge of our language isn't mm. there. The lack of our stories, our traditional practices are not there. Mm. And when you feel incomplete, like I did when I decided to find my roots essentially and everything, mm. and then when I became more aware of them and practicing them, I felt more whole with it Great. as a person. But you see it a lot with Indian country and everything that they, they say historical trauma is the reason why we have so much addictions and those vicious cycles yeah. of drug addiction, abuse, all of it because of that. But then that leads to our education system because a lot of that society does not acknowledge or believe that is a real thing that we deal with. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think one of the problematic things surrounding these issues too is I know um, I hear this a lot where people talk about these things in the past tense, like they're done. And it's like, no, it's still ongoing today. And this isn't like ancient history. Like this is something that's still playing out right now. Yeah, I wonder, you you know, you said you kind of had a, um, a journey of discovery and you sort of maybe came into your own identity more at some point. Can you speak a little bit to that? So it really happened when I had my oldest at 19. Yeah. That was just an awakening of everything. And I decided that I really didn't feel right with the Christian religion or anything. It just never held me to be like, oh, this is it. Where versus I'm like, I feel more of what my grandfather would try to explain, but he couldn't because it would lead to his trauma triggering. And I could always tell by his eyes. When, when I could really feel him having a hard time, I'd look at his eyes and you could just see the pain. Mm. And then I'd let it go. Yeah. But he was a very knowledgeable man and everything and knew a lot of his traditions. But in result, living in the community we live, natives weren't very fond of. We weren't treated right. Mm. There are good stories of friendships, but then... It's always from a white person, not the native. Because mm. he would tell me growing up that they'd get yelled at. There were some places where there were no natives allowed at that time. And that it was just a really bad environment Yeah. for it and everything. So, but for me, I decided to just take it back. It's like, I am going to learn this whether anyone likes it or not. Yeah. Whether my family is supportive or not, I am going to do it anyway. Yeah. But that, like I said, is I've always been like, I'm doing this anyway, whether I have support or not, because I feel so strongly that it is right. Sounds really empowering. It can be. It can be challenging. There's yeah. some good discussions between me and my husband about starting revolutions and <laughs> 
But and then my girls talk about things like, well, what can we change? And I'm like, okay, this is how you can start something. You could silent protest at the Martin Luther King way, or you could go the Malcolm X way. And they're like, okay. I was like, but you have to remember all your actions. There is a reaction. Are you going to be prepared for that reaction? And how are you going to handle it? Because that impacts everything as well. Yeah. They have to sit and really think. We're like, okay, we're not ready to do this. I said, okay, when you are ready, let me know. And I'll give you my honest opinion about is it worth it? Is it worth the fight, essentially? Well, let me know when you start the revolution, because I'd like to be involved. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I got asked that question recently. Like, are you more of a Martin person or more of a Malcolm person? And I thought it was interesting, you know. I love both. Yeah. The same. Each way does have results. Yeah. And I cannot choose between the two of them. In all honesty, I love both of them. Yeah. Kind of contextual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, so the next thing I was hoping to talk about is kind of this analogy, and they had it in the video I had you watch, the In Brief video, where um, it's this idea that essentially each child, their life is like a teeter-totter or a seesaw. Which which one do you prefer? Are you more of a fan of the teeter-totter or the seesaw? Aren't they the same? They are. I just can't decide which term I like better. Heater totter. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> I picture like a little kid with a big head just kind of teetering around. Uh, <laughs> Their heads are very big for a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hilarious age when they have that alien build and yeah. mm-hmm, so top heavy. <laughs> <laughs> At least they're close to the ground when they fall. Yes, but some I have discovered do not automatically hold their head before hitting the ground. Oh, no. No. Those are the ones that get the helmet. Yes, one of my daughters, she, for the life of her, she never held her head up when she fell, and it just solid connect. And I'm like, oh, no, you're going to have a lump, and it's going to hurt. no. But when I see her fall, I'm like, hold your head up, hold your head up. <laughs> Talk and roll. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Self-preservation. Um, so the, the teeter-totter analogy is this idea that, um, you know, on one side we have our challenges and our adversity in life. Um, it could be ACEs. It could be environmental factors. It could be things like social determ- determinants of health. And then on the other side of the teeter-totter, um, we have those positive things. And some of the evidence-based research we talked about earlier, you know, like things like an adult in your life who's carrying um, support systems, good wellness practices, um, access to nutritious food. So there's kind of this constant balance based on um, the input of challenges and the input of positive things. And then where the fulcrum or where the middle point of the teeter-totter is initially starts out based on your genes and the environment you're born into, but the fulcrum can kind of be moved based on some of these experiences you have. And I just wondered how you felt about that analogy of the teeter-totter and maybe thinking about things we could collectively do to push the fulcrum so that um, 
the the teeter-totter falls on the positive side and that children uh, build more resilience and have more healthy adaptations in that toolkit uh, when they're adults. Well, that is a good visual to picture for people to really understand. And when you put it at that way, when a person is born, they don't have a choice in their environment. So sometimes it is more on the negative, unfortunately. And it could be there for most of their lives, their childhood, or it could be more on the positive side. It just really depends where their parents are at in their life or their caregiver or whoever is raising that child. And for me, it go, would go in waves. It was more positive when I was born. And then it, when my mom came around and everything, it was always negative. Mm. And then it slowly eased up. And then it was just always like that until I was 19, unfortunately. And even then it, it had its moments, which is normal that I consider normal because in life you want always happiness and positive, but you need that negative to figure out how essentially strong you are to deal with these adverse effects and everything and what help you need to cope and thrive in this world because this world can be really vicious and mean to someone especially if they don't have that support system for them yeah and something you just said that uh, brought up an idea for me is that like you know the reaction to trauma doesn't always feel proportionate to the trauma. Like you were saying earlier, like sometimes people will experience a divorce and that will really kind of throw their life off and give them a lot of issues to deal with. Whereas other individuals will have, you know, a whole list of traumas might be a nine out of 10 on the A scale and they're very well adapted and very well adjusted. So I think there's an interesting piece there and, Unfortunately, I think a lot of times we place the blame on the individual, but that, you know, um, everyone responds differently to trauma and everyone has their own healing journey. Yes. And then with kids, kids should never, ever be blamed for the effects of trauma. Yeah. Because it literally is not their fault. Yeah. Whatsoever. And it's the parents' fault to ex- to an extent but they are still learning. And when you're a young parent, there's lots of mistakes Mm. that you are going to do that people do not address because everyone thinks that you're a woman, you have a baby, you automatically know what you're going to do. Mm. That is not the case whatsoever. And we forget though, as a society, is that we need to support people instead of saying, what's wrong with you? We have to say, how can we help you? Do you need a couple hours away from your child to have a break? Yeah. Do you need extra diapers? Like, what do you need? Do you need a sobriety call? I will mm. take your child so you can have that time to really heal yourself. So that way we could have less trauma in that child's life and more of healing and stability and everything. There's lots of things we can do as a community and in whole as a society, but we are so selfish to the point that we don't care. That whole empathy and sympathy and caring is gone. I love that. 
like this is not something that happened because of you. It's something that happened to you. And it seems like forgiveness is a big part of that whole process. And, and that parenting is really hard and that we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. And yeah, I, I love what you said there. So getting back to our teeter-totter a little bit, I think another way to look at this is this idea of risk factors and protective factors. And, you know, if we think of human beings like plants, we all grow up in a different environment with, you know, whatever the equivalent of like soil and sunlight and water and wind and all these things is. Um, but I wonder if you might speak to this idea of like community risk factors and community protective factors as you see it in your um, community down there in Lone Pine, like, uh, an example of like a risk factor could be, you know, drugs and alcohol. An example of a protective factor could be like youth sports or something like that. So kind of what are the things that tip that scale one way or another? So the community risk factors are the drug abuse, the rise in opiate drug abuse with fentanyl and everything is just scary. Yeah. And of course we have the others, and meth and alcohol and everything. And it is essential to have programs that we have through OVCDC. There are county programs versus to have a more protective measure is to keep our youth busy, but at the same time, educate them. Mm. That really helps. And as a person who grew up with more of the drug abuse and everything around me, I was never really told that I could be something better. Mm. My grandfather, he would say that we know you're not your mother, but you still are not allowed to go hang out with friends or have sleepovers. We want mm. you home. So I was home and I would always rebel yep. because I didn't want to be home. I knew none of that interests me because I saw the effects of what it did. I have memories of my mom screaming because the, the cop dogs got her and everything. And that stays with me with, with stuff. But as a parent now, I am fortunate that my girls don't have to go with that. But then they're in a way naive that their peers mm. could be going through that. So they are not fully developed with that empathy and sympathy about it. Yeah. Because as a parent, they will ask. And most of the time, I am honest with them. I remember vividly in the car, my oldest like, oh, what did you and your mom do when you went out shopping? I said, well, honey, I didn't have my mom around. I had my grandma and grandpa and we only went grocery shopping and doing anything fun was really non-existent because they were on a limited income. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I said, don't be sorry. I'm fine. I made, I made peace with that as a person. I said, I said, sometimes I would miss it, but it's one of those things you, you never had it. So if you never had something, you kind of want it, but then you saw all the negative and trauma experiences that it literally was not worth it to have around and everything. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Was that kind of a moment for her? Like, did you see the wheels turning yes, a little bit? Yes, because she, cool. she's older now. And when she asked, she was like 10. Yeah. So she's like, oh, 
And I go, yeah, it's very different. I did not have a mom and a dad. I had grandma and grandpa. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. And then they tease me. They're like, oh, you wear old lady clothes. And I'm like, yeah, I was raised by an old lady. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> And they're just like, oh, and like with my new glasses, they're they're just big and green. I love them because you can see so much. I think they're great. And they're like, don't wear those. They are so old lady. I'm like, duh, I was raised by an old lady and I like to see. <laughs> this is, I love to see things. I don't think old ladies get enough credit for their swag. They really don't. I'm big into floral print. I think it's I think it's great. Togi, I love floral. <laughs> All right, I have one more topic I was hoping to dive into, and then I'll let you get back to your work. But yeah, the last topic I was just hoping to close on was wellness, and I was using this graphic from the Aces Aware website that's called Stress Busters, and you know, um, there's a lot of talk about wellness and self care nowadays with the pandemic, and I think sometimes for me, it's something that almost gets over talked about or like, I think sometimes there's so much responsibility put on the individual to practice wellness and to heal themselves. But at the same time, I do think it's really great that people are thinking and talking about this stuff more. So this, the ingredients in this stress buster graphic for wellness are supportive relationships, quality sleep, balanced nutrition, physical activity, mindfulness or spiritual practices, experiencing nature, mental health, and I already said supportive relationships, right? Yeah. So those are kind of their ingredients. And to me, what that comes out to is it's like little things that add up to big things. And I was sort of wondering if you could speak to like wellness practices, both for yourself, but also how you teach wellness practices um, when you're like either with your girls or when you're doing early childhood education. So wellness practice with my girls is to just always have that communication there with us. And they will tell me if they're just not having a good day. And I'm like, all right, what are you going to do to take care of that? They're like, okay, well, I'm just going to sleep a little bit extra. I'm going to do some yoga. I want junk food. I said, okay, what type of junk food? And they're telling me some ice cream. I'm like, okay, I could do that. Let's yeah. do that. And then when with the little guys, what we used to do at preschool is that we do like meditate follow along videos cool. that was age appropriate. And there's one about a dragon where we lay down and closed our eyes and just listen to the person speaking that we're a dragon. We're soaring up in the sky and it really helped Yeah, to just find that peace. How did they respond to it? They're like, okay, let's do this. Let's be dragons. <laughs> That's great. They're little guys, the toddler ones, the preschool age. They're a lot easier to try new stuff. Yeah. Versus older kids where they're just like, no, that sounds dumb. Totally. And I wonder if that's really key, like starting it at a young age. So it's not this like unfamiliar thing that they don't want to do or they feel like it's not cool, like starting some of these things like mindfulness or nature or physical activity young. I almost feel like it's like, you know, I think an example of this could be eating healthy where it's like if you grow up eating fast food, the healthy food isn't going to seem appealing. But if you grow up eating healthy food, that's kind of your standard or like, you know, like smoking cigarettes could be an example. It's like if you never start, you just won't crave them. 
So I wonder, wonder about things like that. Um, yeah. Um, what is your personal favorite on this list? My personal favorite on the list is the one, is the self-care one. Yeah, it's this. Oh, it's the stress busters. It's the circle. Yeah, there it is. Is the mental health care and supportive relationships to me awesome. that go hand in hand with one another? And so, since we as SPCs and we're reopening, it's a lot of going, going, going. And then when I add my schoolwork into it, it is another thing. And then families and everything so lately in all honesty i was feeling a little overwhelmed but my husband's like no i will take care of the housework and the laundry and everything and which is so awesome because that just helps so much more but he's always picking up where i'm slacking and last night i was in bed writing my notes for my textbook studying and he's like okay, I'm going to leave you alone. Mm. And I was like, okay, because it's nice and quiet, perfect temp. I had my cats <laughs> and everything. And, but he recognizes that, that I just needed that space to finish what I needed to finish. Great. And it, it just helps so much that he is my person. Yeah. That I wouldn't be here today without him. And I appreciate and I really love him so much. He is my biggest advocate and my biggest enemy at times when he's not doing what I want. But that is normal, totally normal, because I do the same to him. <laughs> Normalized conflict. I like it. Yes. Sh shout out Justin. Sounds yes, like shout out to Justin. Sounds he, like he's very supportive. He is, because he is in a home full of all girls. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in an office full of all women, and I learn a lot. Yes, you do. Yep. They keep me in line, and sometimes I'm used to pull, like, high things off of shelves. Um, that's, like, one of my main functions in the office. That is really good to have. <laughs> it is. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the last things I was hoping to ask you, if, like, there's just any shout-outs you wanted to give, um, any just, like, recognitions. Yeah, my biggest recognition is my husband, Justin, and my girls. My girls are my biggest cheerleaders. And sometimes they're a bit truthful, too truthful. But that's my own fault. Honesty is the best policy in our life. And then to my aunt, she has been my rock and a mother in some sorts throughout my life and everything. And just all the community who have shown me love and support and to the ones who said, I couldn't do it because I am doing it. Prove those haters wrong. Yes. Um, and yeah, any events you'd like to promote uh, through OVCDC or otherwise? Yes. So I am collaborating with Tuniwan Nobi, Donald Powell. We're doing family formation through Love of Literacy, which is a book club geared toward adults and older kids. We just started that yesterday. We have lots of indigenous and non-indigenous authors that we like to explore and just read awesome books, have great conversations about awesome books we read, and to instill that love of literacy because it is lacking with people now, unfortunately. I am doing a toddler time 
with pregnant mothers through the age of five, and that is collaboration with Inyo County First Five. Keep a lookout for that. I'm also doing the homework assistance program, which is the big one we have with tutoring, story hour, Native youth identity, and building bridges, which is with also Donald Latuniwa for parent advocacy in the school system. And last but not least is the Family Formation Empowering Indigenous Parenting with the Positive Indian Parenting Curriculum involved with that. That will be happening with everything. And just call the Lone Pine office at 760-876-4300 if you are interested to sign up and look for our flyers on Facebook. Awesome. Okay, two more things. I know I keep tacking stuff on. But um, what advice would you give to someone out there who's struggling with trauma right now? The best advice I could give is to seek help. Find someone to talk to, whether they're an actual therapist or if they're your safe person. Do not hold that in whatsoever because it does more damage than good and that You are not the only one struggling whatsoever, and it's not your fault. None of this is really anyone's fault that with trauma, it's what we learn and gain and just not gain those resources or tools to make ourselves better. Excellent. And I was just hoping to end it on like something positive or lighthearted. So I was just wondering if you had like a a story or like something that, you encountered in your work that just like made you happy, like something that brought you joy? When we had our end of the year story hour that we did for this last program year, it was Selena. The families had a great time. There's an awesome storybook about Selena and her life and the positive impact she was doing. And unfortunately, as we know, she passes at such an early age. Well, the family that participated the whole year during COVID virtually, the kids made me an awesome picture with the stuff I gave them. And they have a a picture of Selena, of ice cream, of party decorations. (laughs) And it says, we love your books, Esther. And they spelled my name right, which is so (laughs) awesome. But getting that, I was like, yes, look at this picture. I love it. It's just makes me feel good that they love beginning to love reading yeah, and just having a good time with all the stuff I gave them and just starting with a positive impact in their life. Oh man, that's wonderful. I'm really glad we got to Selena. And as soon as you started talking about books, I had a bunch of questions crop up because I just, I love reading and I've been in the Res Readers book club and it's just been something really positive in my life. And, um, yeah, big shout out books, big shout out Selena. I just during this conversation, I think there are a million things that I felt like I could have talked to you for another two hours about. Um, and I just really appreciate your your vibe, the authenticity you bring, um, just your honesty and your perspective. And yeah, I, I'm just really grateful for you to come here and share with us today. And Um, Thank you for all the work you're doing in the community. It's super inspiring. And yeah, I hope we can connect on one of these again. Thank you so much for coming out and being a guest. Thank you. I really enjoyed my time and everything. And if 
you ever want to do it again, I'm just a phone call away. That's great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Esther. Let's talk again soon. Thank you. What's the new boonie way? Thank you to OVCDC and Aces Aware for your continued support. Big shout out to Grayson Gorse for providing the original music you heard during the introduction. You can find his tracks wherever you get your music. Thank you to our amazing, talented guests who volunteer some of their precious free time to sit down for our conversation. If you'd like to reach out or have questions about the show, please email lwilson at ovcdc.com. Thank you for listening and happy healing.